Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kaler. Hey, it's good to see everybody. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm the family pastor here. So if you have kids, there's a good chance I've met you. Um, if you don't have kids and you're new to our church, you're wondering, who's this new guy? <laughs> um, been here for about seven years with my family, two boys, Cannon and Crew, 10 and 5, and we just love doing ministry here, love being here at this church. So hope to meet you if I don't know you, but I get to share God's word this morning, which is a huge privilege. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today, Luke chapter 5. And they asked if I wanted the Pastor Nate pulpit or the other pulpit, so... I feel really small in Pastor Nate's pulpit, and I feel a little more exposed in this one, so <laughs> didn't realize it was so small, but um, maybe we'll need to get one in the middle. <laughs> anyway, we'll get through it together. I'd love to pray for our time and then um, jump into this, this wonderful passage and see what the Lord has to say to us today. So uh, if you'd pray with me. Well, Lord, thank you so much for your, uh, this day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And Lord, it's such a privilege to come and to worship you in song with your people and then to turn to your word and have your word shape our hearts and our minds and then our actions. And so, Lord, would you do that by your Holy Spirit? I know, Lord, that um, I have nothing (laughs) in myself to say, Lord, you need to empower me by your spirit in order for these words to be effective. So would you do that now, God? And would you work in our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Well, growing up with four siblings, there was an event that was kind of a rite of passage for me and um, my siblings, and that was to go to take your kids to work day with my dad. My dad uh, was a maintenance mechanic for several state buildings in Stockton, California, where he worked for about 35 years before retiring. And he's basically like a jack of all trades. So anything that broke, my dad would get called and he would come and fix it. And so I remember the day when my day came to go to work with dad. And it was, uh, it was a huge deal for me. I just felt so grown up at eight or nine years old when I was able to do this with dad. And I uh, felt pretty special when I remember the elevator that we would walk in and my dad had a special key where the elevator door on the other side opened up. I didn't even know that was a thing until I went to work with dad and we got to go behind the elevator and then we got to go to all the floors and he'd take me into the offices and introduce me to everyone as you know his son and they had candy for me, which was great. It's almost like they knew I was coming or something like they set the whole thing up, but it was so fun. And I remember, you know, getting calls or my dad getting calls and then thinking, all right, I got to help dad. I got to figure out what, what's the problem. Like I'm going to go with dad and figure So I just thinking about, you know, plumbing and electrical and all these things I was very skilled at, at nine years old, thinking I was going to, you know, help dad and contribute. Um, he was very encouraging. Thanked me for my work that day. And, uh, it was, um, by far the least productive day my dad ever had at work. But <laughs> It was all right. I was working with dad. I was joining him in his work and I got to experience the privileges with working with him and sharing in some of that responsibility, if only for a day. And I say that to say, I think that's what it means to live on mission in our Christian life. 
I think it's a lot like going to work with dad every day. I think what we get to do in living out our Christianity and living on mission is simply joining in the work that God is already doing in the world. We don't have all the expertise. We don't know how to fix all the problems, but he does. And when we're empowered by his Holy Spirit to live with intentionality towards the people we come into contact with, we get a sense that God has already been up to something in the hearts and minds of the people around us. We get to go to work with dad. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what does it look like to partner with Christ in his work in the world? So as a way of reminder, Pastor Nate has been leading us through a short series in the ministry of Christ. We've been looking at Luke 4 and, and parts of 5. That's what we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 11, chapter 5. Pastor Nate has highlighted Jesus's ministry in his authority, his preparation, his mission, and we're going to wrap this short series up by looking today at partnership in the ministry of Christ. Now, why talk about partnership in the gospel? Well, it's what Pastor Nate told me to teach on, so that's what I'm going to do. But now there's good reason to talk about partnership, right? We're going to see in our passage that this is how God works in the world. Just simply put, Jesus invited these men to follow him and be his disciples and these men spent the next two to three years with Jesus, watching him, listening to him, learning from him, and then ultimately being sent out by him. This wasn't because Jesus was lonely and he needed some companionship while on the earth. This was his plan all along, to have disciples who would then go and make disciples, who would then go and make disciples, who would then go and make disciples. In fact, before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he let his disciples in on what was going to happen. And he told them, I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and, and then I'm going to rise again and I'm going to leave. And, and, and in fact, it's better for me and better for you that this happens so that the Holy Spirit comes, the helper, the teacher. He's going to lead you in, in, in all the things that I've said to you. Now, that would have been hard, I'm sure, for the disciples to think, wait, it's better for you, Jesus, to not be here? What, what is going on? But but that is the truth. And in fact, today, each of us having the Holy Spirit in our lives is empowered for service, is empowered for mission in the world. As hard as that was for those disciples to hear, it was the only way that the gospel and this message would spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. And how did that spread go? Well, historians believe that the number of believers by the end of the first century was around 7,500 by the end of the fifth century, that number increased to around 10 to 11 million Christians. That's incredible growth. And what, what accounts for that kind of growth? Well, I think it was because these followers of Jesus lived out the commission that Jesus gave them before he went to be with the Lord, right? Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Many of you have it memorized. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. According to a 2022 status of global Christianity report, around 2.5 billion people identify as Christians today. By 2015, that number is expected to top 3.3 billion people. Yes, the, the, the gospel is spreading. Contrary to what we may hear in reports, God is saving. God is growing his church. 
Yes, in parts of the Western world that are becoming more secular, we see, especially in parts of Africa and Asia, an explosion of the gospel taking place. God is still on mission today. God is still working today, and he invites us to join him in that work. How is it that a message of a first century Jewish carpenter from Nazareth has spread to every continent in nearly every corner of the world and has impacted billions of people for the last 2,000 years? It's because his Holy Spirit, empowering individuals, men and women, have sent them out to spread the good news of Jesus, to share the gospel so that people will follow and become disciples who will then go and spread the gospel to people who will then accept and follow and make disciples. This has always been God's plan. And so what does it look like for us to partner with Jesus in this great work of making disciples? Well, let's look at our passage. Start in verse one of Luke chapter five. Let's read this. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the Lake Gennesaret. Now that's a, a kind of a nickname for the Sea of Galilee, which happens to be a spot that you can visit when you go on the Israel trip. So a little shameless plug there, sign up for that one. But here's the scene. Jesus is preaching, crowds have gathered, and they are so interested in hearing what it is that Jesus has to say. Notice there's just something about Jesus, right? There was something about the way he taught, something about his message. It was the word of God declaring the very word of God. People were drawn to him. They wanted to hear him speak. Crowds were pushing in so much that Jesus needed to find a solution to speak to this large crowd of people. So it says in verse two, notice, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter, he asked them to put a little, out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here they are. Jesus is teaching. The crowds are pressing in. They, they really want to hear what this person is saying. And the fishermen that owned the boats were done for the day. They, they clocked out. They were cleaning up. They weren't planning on going back into the water. But all of a sudden, Jesus gets into one of their boats. It's Peter's boat. Do you think that was coincidence or did Jesus plan that? Pretty sure he planned that. I'm sure Peter at that point was tired, exhausted, probably discouraged because they were doing um, a lot of casting, not a lot of fishing that night, right? So Jesus gets in his boat. Little did Peter know that that would change his life forever, Jesus getting in his boat. And can I just say to you today, if you have yet to invite Jesus into your boat, today is your day. Today is the day that you can listen and receive the word of God, just as Peter and those around were doing and then you could get him in your boat because you want to have Jesus in your boat. You don't want to try to sail in this world without him. Man, the waves are tumultuous. It's, the storms are, are, are crazy. You want Jesus as the captain of your boat. When Jesus finished teaching, he turned to Peter and he said, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, I think this just shows the heart of our savior. He really wants to bless us, right? However, this was an unusual command considering that these guys had already kind of hung it up for the day and uh, they were washing their nets. So what we know of Peter at this point is that he's, he's an experienced fisherman. It's his occupation. It's his profession. Although in the scriptures, as you, you've probably read, um, we see Peter fishing a lot, but we don't see him catching a lot. So <laughs> I'm not sure how successful of a fisherman he was, but he keeps on giving it the old college try. So good for him. I, I, I don't have much room to talk. I do a lot of casting, not a lot of fishing. So that's, that's what I do. 
Regardless, Peter, as a fisherman, would know the Sea of Galilee very well. That means he'd know where the fish gather, at what times they gather, and the optimal spots to fish. And at this moment, it would appear this wasn't the best time to fish. They clocked out for the day. Nevertheless, Jesus says, put your nets down here. So you have Jesus, the carpenter by trade, telling Peter, the fisherman, to put his nets down here. And I I think you can imagine Peter thinking, hey, Jesus, if I have like a loose leg on my table or a wobbly stool, like I'll talk to you and ask your advice. But hey, I'm a fisherman. Yes, I don't catch much fish. But when I do, it's because I'm a fisherman. (laughs) And so I'm sure he played through these different things in his mind. So Peter, he says to Jesus, we've been out here all night. We haven't caught anything. But then this next sentence is beautiful. But at your word, I will let down the nets. It's like Peter saying, I don't even know why I'm going to do this. Logic, you know, everything would go against me doing what you've asked me to do. But there's something about you. At your word, I will do it. You see, Peter, for all his fumbles and stumbles in these moments, we see his faith on display. Peter's saying, there are plenty of reasons for me to not do what you're asking of my life, yet I'll do it. And I wonder for some of us here today, if that's where you're at. Peter could have got hung up on all the reasons not to do what Jesus told him to do. But it seems that Peter knew just enough about Jesus after hearing him preach, after knowing about him, he decided to take that step. And I'm afraid for some that are on the fence about Jesus, it, their focus is more on the things, the reasons why not to follow him instead of looking at the compelling reasons to follow Jesus. And I'm not saying that You won't have questions. I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. I'm pretty sure Peter had doubts and questions as to why Jesus was asking him to do this thing. But again, there was just something about Jesus that Peter chose to obey his command. Reminds me, I heard recently, Dr. Craig Hazen, the director of Christian apologetics program at Biola University. He's a PhD in world religions, and he has this great um, thought about the uniqueness of Jesus compared to other historical religious figures. This idea that there's just something about Jesus. His argument goes something like this. All other religious figures want a piece of Jesus. He stands in a category by himself. You see, no one outside of Islam is going to try to claim Muhammad. No one outside of Mormonism is going to try to claim Joseph Smith. Nobody outside of Hinduism is going to try to claim Krishna. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus, though. He's the one religious figure that transcends all religious figures. In Buddhism, you even have Buddhists who will talk about Jesus being an enlightened one. Hindus may talk about Jesus being a God or avatar in their system. And many Jews will even say Jesus was a good religious figure and understood Judaism, although he got big things wrong, according to them. In the Quran, you have Jesus being referred to as a virgin born, sinless, miracle working prophet. And here's Craig's point. If you're investigating different religions, why not start with the one religious figure that transcends all of them? And Jesus does. Other religious figures are pointing towards truth outside. Jesus says, I am the truth. At the least, this should require us to investigate this man that has forever changed humanity. There's just something about Jesus, isn't there? Peter felt it. So he ends up doing what Jesus told him to do. And then what happens? Look verse 6 and 7. It says, And when they had done this, put down their net, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. 
They signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Oh my goodness, there's so many fish that their nets start to break and they they need extra hands, they need extra help. And so Jesus, what he said by putting down their nets, look at the response here. Peter, having seen this, the scriptures say there in verse eight, he fell down at Jesus's feet saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter falls down in humility and fear and worships Jesus. Jesus' response is to speak to his fear. In verse 9, it says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So how can we partner with Jesus and live on mission for him? Well, I believe this passage shows us four things that should mark our lives as we partner with Jesus on mission. And I want to go through these together. The first one I see in verses eight and nine, and that's to be in awe of Jesus, to be in awe of Jesus. You see, when Peter saw this catch of fish, what Jesus had said and what had been done, he fell down at Jesus's feet. Peter had a sense of awe and amazement at Jesus here. You see, this wasn't a parlor trick of Jesus. This wasn't Jesus getting lucky with the location of where he told the men to put their nets down. This was Jesus demonstrating his power and his provision over Peter's life. And notice Peter's reaction was a mix of attraction, but trepidation. He was drawn in, but he was also not feeling worthy, like he could approach Jesus. You ever had those experiences where there's this, you're drawn, but you're also fearful. I remember the first time I talked to my, who would be my wife one day, Bree Pritchett. I remember the night. I remember it well. I got, the, got up the, the gusto and the, the confidence to talk to her after church one Sunday night, after kind of seeing her and, and um, you know, basically realizing I need to talk to this girl. And so I remember we were in the parking lot and I felt like, all right, I've got, I've got the courage. I feel pretty confident. She's not going to know I'm, you know, super nervous. So we had a great conversation. I felt like it just went really well. Felt great about the conversation. We went away. And later, um, it was, took a couple years of friendship and then we started dating. And we were reminiscing one day about that first night that we met and She's like, hey, you remember that first night we met? I'm like, yeah, I remember that first night. Do you remember that first night that we met? <laughs> remember how slick I was? You know? And she's like, yeah, totally. I remember that first night. She's like, it was so cute because the whole time you were talking to me, your lip was quivering. <laughs> Nothing says confidence like a good lip quiver, <laughs> right? Yeah, needless to say, I felt... <laughs> Felt pretty dumb in that moment, but you know those moments where you're, you're in the presence of greatness. You know, maybe you've met someone that you consider to be great, or you know, you've had an opportunity to do something, and you, you've got this sense of um, excitement, attraction, but also this kind of fear. And, and here's, here's Peter working through that. He's kind of just wondering, is it okay to approach this person? He sees his own sinfulness, and he's overcome in the presence of Jesus so much so that he falls at his feet and worships him. And I think what this tells me is that if we're going to partner with Jesus and his mission, we never want to lose our sense of awe and wonder over the person of Jesus. 
We never want uh, you know, to, to, to lose that amazement over who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. Some of the language that we've adopted here at Calvary Monterey to communicate this idea is in our vision statement, Jesus famous. Maybe you're new to our church or you know, maybe you've seen that around, but you're like, what, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we're trying to make Jesus popular. It doesn't mean that we're trying to get him on TMZ and these you know, uh, other paparazzi sites or magazines. That's not what we mean by that kind of fame. What we mean is that we want Jesus to be the main priority in our lives. We want him to be the main thing. We want his fame, not our own fame, not even a church's fame or name to be the thing. We want it to be Jesus that we're proclaiming, that we're lifting up, that we're elevating in our lives and in our church. We want to be so overwhelmed by the power and presence of Jesus that like Peter, we come before him humbly and confess our need for him. That's what Jesus famous in our life looks like. This is a Jesus famous passage because that's what we see happening with Peter here. One of the things that helps me recover a sense of awe at Christ's power and majesty is hearing the testimonies of people, especially new believers. There's something kind of funny that happens the, the more that we walk with the Lord. Maybe we, we, we forget how powerful his gospel is, how powerful his life-saving um, gospel is. You know, we recently did a 27-hour prayer time with um, Regeneration Recovery Ministry, and it was just such a sweet thing to be a part of that and to worship with all of you that were a part of that, but also to hear testimonies of people just being impacted by the gospel. And for someone like me who I, you know, I love apologetics. I love uh, learning what the culture is wrestling with and then finding ways. How does the gospel reach that? And, you know, for me, it's just great to hear that oftentimes it's not, it's not the, the ability of the speaker to communicate the gospel that got someone to be saved. It's not always the, the argument that won them over. It's really the, the simple presentation of Jesus and the gospel and just the work that God's doing in their life or so whatever it may be, just something happens and to know that, man, God doesn't really need my help <laughs> in that. Like he, he could do it, but he invites me to be a part of it. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. So maybe some of you, maybe it's breaking out an old Christian biography, you know, of, of a saint that has come before. Um, maybe it's um, grabbing coffee with a new believer. Maybe it's hanging out at regeneration because there's just such a sweet work that God does through people um, coming out of addiction and just being impacted by Jesus to recover our sense of awe. What follows when this happens? What, when, when he has our awe and our wonder, what follows is obedience. We want to follow him. Author and pastor J.D. Greer puts it this way. Awe compels obedience. Until God is big to you, you'll never find the strength to obey him. For many people to struggle with obeying the Lord, the problem is that they are not in awe of God. The reason they don't obey, the reason they don't seek God is because he is distant, small, almost unreal. And friends, if you've lost your sense of awe of God, man, if he feels distant to you, I would encourage you to, to press into to rediscovering afresh his characters seen through the pages of scripture. Re-engage in times of prayer where you are coming before the Lord and you are casting your cares on him and receiving from him encouragement. Also be humbled in his presence as you sing rich songs of praise, declaring what he's done and who he is, not just what he can do for you. 
I think this is the first step in partnering with Christ and his mission to be humbled in his presence, to be in awe of him, so much so that we are compelled to obey. You see, if Jesus is not famous in us, we're going we're to have a hard time inviting others to make him famous in their lives. Number two, how do we partner with Christ in his mission? Be available to Jesus. Be available to Jesus. I see this in verses one through seven with Peter. You know, I'm sure you've heard the saying, God's not looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability, right? And as we live in a sense of awe and wonder for who Christ is and all he's done, we also need to be available to him as we seek to partner in his mission in the world. And I think uh, Peter demonstrates this well. Notice Peter, he made his boat available to Jesus. Peter was in the boat with Jesus. And then Peter's nets were also available to Jesus's command. I'm sure when Peter looked at that boat, he didn't look at and see a pulpit, but Jesus did. I'm sure in your life, in your career, and in your relationships, in your profession, your finances, there may be resources that you have. And Jesus is saying, hey, can you make that available to me? And when you do, it'll be amazing to see what he can do and transform through you those things. You see, when we partner with Jesus and live on mission for him, he takes the ordinary stuff of life and transforms it into something great. A boat becomes a pulpit. A net becomes a picture of his power. And an obscure, insecure fisherman becomes the first apostle and one of the most influential Christians who have ever lived. God is in the business of taking ordinary things once they're in his hands and doing something extraordinary with them. Reminds me of the poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand. I'm sure you've heard this one before. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried. "'Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar, do I hear two? Two dollars, who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow." Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, what now am I bid for this old violin as he held it aloft with its bow? One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried, we just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. I think living on mission means not always doing something additional in our lives, but doing something intentional. It doesn't always mean that we have to do something spectacular or add something in our daily lives. It means doing the things that we are already doing with gospel intentionality. I'm reading through a book with my 10-year-old. My We're doing some discipleship in the mornings and one of the assignments in this book that's written for kids is to think through five places that you visit during the week and then write those down. And so we had a fun time thinking through, you know, what are the five places we got? We learned that we take our kids a lot to the grocery store. So <laughs> a lot of Trader Joe's, which Trader Joe's is great because the, the checkout people kind of have to talk to you. And, and so it's kind of a great gospel opportunity. But we were saying, okay, what would it look like? And I was asking Canon, Canon, what would it look like for us to, to like bring Jesus into those environments? So he's just kind of thinking, we're like talking about it. And this was a great exercise even for me to think through. Like when we go to Home Depot, 
You know, what would it look like for us? And I was talking to uh, John Bridges after first service, and he's like, I think just smiling at Home Depot might be a great, you know, start. I was like, amen. We can all join the smile brigade and bring some Jesus into that environment. But just to think, think through, you know, for us, each individually, it's not always additional. It's intentional. So where, where do you get your hair cut? I, I think, hair, you know, getting your hair cut is just such a great gospel opportunity because you're kind of there and they're kind of stuck with you for like 30 minutes. <laughs> or, you know, where do you get your coffee? Are you going to the same coffee shop? You know, it's just kind of being intentional to bring Jesus into those environments where, like Paul said, we bring the fragrance of Christ. So when we leave, what fragrance are we leaving behind? Are we getting, you know, distracted and, and are, are we, you know, doing what most people do today in line is just kind of like this, right? On our phones. I'm guilty of this myself. There are times I have to stop myself and just be like, man, be present because <laughs> that stands out today. And so how can we have gospel intentionality? And when we have an opportunity to speak, I think Colossians 4, 6 gives us a great template for how to speak. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Salt is a life-preserving agent back in that time. And so this means that oftentimes preserving life, it's going to require truth <laughs> and speaking truth to people who are far from God. But it's doing it always full of grace. And that's what Jesus did. He was full of grace and truth. And somehow people were still drawn to him. As we look to partner with Christ and his mission of the world, and you pray for him to use you in these everyday rhythms. Don't be surprised if you don't start seeing opportunities to talk with people who are far from God. If we don't look for these opportunities, and if we don't walk with intentionality, we can run the risk of isolating ourselves and losing our saltiness. Alistair Begg, great Bible teacher and author, he says, if we become too absorbed by the culture, we'll have someone to talk to but nothing to say. If we become too isolated from the culture, we'll have something to say, but no one to talk to. We get in our echo chambers. Let's get out. Let's, let's bring the fragrance of Christ to those that we come into contact with. Number three. So how do we partner with Jesus in mission in this world? We want to be in awe of him. We want to be available to him. Third, we want to apprentice under him. We want to apprentice under him. I see this through the, the disciples, Peter, James, and John. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This was their way of saying, we're going to apprentice under Rabbi Jesus. We're going to be with him now. And we're going to learn from him. We're going to follow him. We're going to try to replicate and do what he does. Now, I, I read that and I, I think I'm a little curious about like what happened to the fish. <laughs> Like that, that was a, that was a big catch of fish. I'm sure if Judas was around, he'd be thinking that too. Like, oh, we're just going to leave those there. <laughs> Could think of a better use for those. <clears throat> Luke doesn't mention what happened to the fish because it's not important. See, at this point, there wasn't any size catch that was going to keep these men from following Jesus. And that's what they committed to do. And that's what it means to partner with Jesus. It means choosing to apprentice under him as master, teacher, and rabbi. An apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person in order to learn to do what that person does or to become what that person is. And that's our purpose of apprenticeship under Jesus, 
to spend time with him, in order to learn who he is, in order to become like him, in order to do the things that he would do if he were us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 speaks to this idea of us becoming like Christ. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do we do this? Well, look at the disciples. They went everywhere with Jesus. They obeyed him. They did the things he told them to do. They allowed Jesus to call them out when they needed correction. A lot of them needed correction, mainly Peter. They adopted practices and rhythms in their daily lives that were centered around their master. And then what started to happen? They started to change. It wasn't over time, or overnight. It was over time. But as each one of them chose to leave behind their old identity and apprentice under Jesus, their lives changed. Okay, so what does that look like for us today? Apprenticing under, under Jesus means adopting practices and rhythms in our daily lives that are going to continually reorient our hearts and stir our affections for King Jesus. This will include Bible reading, prayer. For some, it may mean slowing down, finding quiet, finding silence, tuning out the distractions, and sitting under the feet of Jesus. It means doing Jesus-y stuff. <laughs> so you may be thinking, okay, great. Now, another teaching on how I need to read my Bible more and pray and I know I wasn't doing enough, so now I just got to add a lot of these things and it just kind of starts to feel like work. And I, that's, not, that's not what I'm trying to communicate. Friends, if we want to apprentice under Jesus, it will require prioritizing time with him, especially in our fast-paced, multitasking world. This, this can be hard, but I want you to listen to the words of Jesus because the invitation to apprentice under him and the life that he's calling you into, I want you to hear, lest you think it, of it just as work. Matthew 11 Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that sound like work? You just kind of have to ax to the grindstone. You just got to push through. I just got to do my Jesus thing, and then I got to get onto my other stuff. That's not what apprenticing under Jesus is like. It's a way of life with Jesus. And that's what Dallas Willard, great theologian says, the easy yoke is a way of life with Jesus. One of the lies in our culture today is it's hard to follow Christ. No, it's the easy way. The transformation of the self is what leads to the blessed life. And this is what Jesus is after. He's after our best. You know, he, he knows what the good life is. And ultimately, that's what he's after. Us participating with him in his mission in order that we might experience the life that we were designed to live. So partnering with Jesus and his mission of the world requires apprenticeship under him as master and king. It means forsaking those other identities for the sake of following him. Because for Peter and the other disciples, notice they left their nets and they followed Jesus. They left behind what was probably their, most of their identity tied up in their profession and what they were doing and, and their livelihood. They laid that down to embrace a new identity as a disciple. And the word we use for this is surrender. They surrendered. All right, Lord, use me. As someone has said, 
A disciple is someone who says to to Jesus, whatever, whenever, however, (laughs) use me. John Tyson in his book, The Burden is Light, says this about surrender. Surrender is that beautiful posture of the heart in which we humbly climb off the throne of our own lives and invite the one who rightfully belongs there to take our place. Instead of seeking sovereignty over ourselves, we trust the one who is over all things and rest in his good intentions for our lives. As we partner with Jesus, we need to show those far from God what it looks like to follow Jesus with our lives, what it looks like to apprentice under him. It starts with surrender, saying, Lord, wherever, whatever, whenever, I'm yours. Okay, last one. How do we partner with Jesus and his mission to the world? We need to be in awe of him, recapture that sense of wonder and majesty for who he is. Two, we need to be available to him. Three, we need to apprentice under Jesus to learn from master Jesus. And then four, we need to grow in our adoration for Jesus. Because man, a heart that's empowered and motivated by love, there's no stopping where God might take you and what he might do through you. And I got to take you to John 21 to see this because there is another passage. And I'm sure some of you, after reading through this, your mind goes to John 21, which is a very similar passage, but it's after the cross. It's after the resurrection. Jesus has already appeared to the disciples and they're, they're, they're there together. Jesus is not with them at the moment. And there's this statement. It says that Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And it says, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I just love that. <laughs> Peter just looks around. It's like, I'm going fishing. Now, you know, people have read that as, is he turning back to his old life? Is this him kind of trying to re-embrace that, that old identity of fisherman? I don't know, but the scripture doesn't say, but he may have just wanted to fish and he missed out, you know, he missed it or something. So they go fishing, they join him. And it says in, in verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, or more uh, literally translated lads, do you have any fish? They answered him, no, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. There's a lot of similarities to our passages in there. You've got Peter once again fishing, but not catching anything. Once again, they toiled all night. Once again, they're told to put their nets on the other side of the boat. And once again, they bring in a ton of fish. But notice the difference is with Peter's reaction. In our story, Peter confesses Jesus as Lord, but says, depart from me. There's a sense of, I can't draw near. But in this instance, Peter, once he knows it's Jesus, he runs after him. He can't even wait for the boat to come to shore. He's got to beat all the other guys there. He's probably a little bummed that John beat him to the tomb. So he's like, John's not going to do that again. I'm going to get there before him, right? He wanted to be the first one to Jesus. Why does Peter respond one way to a miracle and another? Think of what has happened. The cross. Not just the cross. I, I, think, I think it was Peter seeing the love and compassion of Jesus demonstrated on the cross that changed his heart. Even though he had messed up, the mercy and compassion of Jesus drew him close. It drew him near. And that's what Jesus' mercy does. 
when we really grasp the magnitude and depth of his grace and his mercy, we will want to draw near. As unworthy, as sinful creatures as we are, yet forgiven, yet given a new identity, we draw near. Because it's one thing for him to capture our will. It's another thing for him to capture our heart. Has your heart been captured by the mercy and grace of Jesus towards you? How do you know? One way is when you fail, not if, do you run from Jesus or do you run toward him? Do you feel his tenderness and his compassion or do you imagine him looking at you with disgust and annoyance? You see, even when you fail him, he remains faithful, faithful to love you, faithful to care and faithful to call you his own. So friends, if we're going to partner with him in mission, man, let his mercy, let his compassion cause you to adore him today. Let his love motivate you to partner with him to extend that love to others who are far from him. It close with this. When Hudson Taylor was director of the Chilean Inland Mission, that great missionary to China, he often interviewed candidates for the mission field. On one occasion, he met with a group of applicants to determine their motivations for service. And why do you wish to go as a foreign missionary? He asked one. I want to go because Christ has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, was the reply. Another said, I want to go because millions are perishing without Christ. Others gave different answers. And then Hudson Taylor said, all of these motives, however good, will fail you in times of testing, trials, tribulations, and possible death. There is but one motive that will sustain you in trial and testing, namely the love of Christ. That's what's going to get us through. (laughs) The love of Christ, the mercy, the compassion, the tenderness that he has demonstrated to each one of us who invites us to draw near to him. So what does it look like to partner with Christ in his ministry in the world? To be in awe of him, to be amazed, to be available to him, to say, Lord, here's my life, here's my resources. How would you want to use them? To not live additionally, but intentionally. To apprentice under him, to come under master teacher, King Jesus, and learn of his ways. And then finally, to grow in your adoration for him, to be motivated by love. For some of you, this might mean inviting Jesus into your boat. Maybe you've been on the fence. And maybe you've just hesitated. What's he going to do? Where's he going to take me? I'm going to end up somewhere that I don't want to be eating food. I hate. (laughs) But man, if this passage teaches you anything, I mean, I hope it teaches you that he's got such good things planned for you. You think of Peter, you think of all these disciples, their lives were so transformed and changed that they were willing to go to the ultimate lengths to give their life for Jesus and death. For others, it means putting down your nets and leaving them behind. What is that thing that maybe you're hanging on to? What is that thing that's keeping you from fully apprenticing and following Jesus? Cast that net aside and trust that the Lord's gonna give you something better in exchange. Take his yoke upon you. Experience the rest in your soul as you go to work with your Heavenly Father every day. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. 
Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.